You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Me too. Looking forward to all the different ways that we're uh, able to reconnect and regather. Um, thank you for joining us this morning. My name is Richard. If you're unfamiliar with who I am, it's great to be with you wherever you're watching this. And uh, Sunday, 8th of March, 2020. Do you remember that? Um, had we known that Sunday that someone, hey, that is going to be the last time that you're going to be able to gather in person as a church for about another 20 months, I think we all would have been you're crazy. But um, that turns out to be true. Uh, that was the last time that we uh, officially gathered together in person as Every Nation GTA before the world changed. The world is still changing. But the good news is next Sunday, I hope you're um, coming to our pop-up worship service. Somebody asked me, what is a pop-up worship service? It's, our, it's a one-off in-person worship service for now. We're hoping to get more into those rhythms as we go into the new year. But it's going to be next Sunday at 4 p.m. and uh, we won't be live streaming. So for those of you that are enjoying this live stream, We'll be taking the week off uh, that Sunday because we really want to focus on being present in person together. And so registrations are filling up fast. You do need to register. You'll hear some more details about that later. But uh, we will encourage you. It's so important for us to gather as the people of God. I know you're doing that in smaller groups this morning, and that's fantastic. There is something of a power when the church gathers um, in a larger setting and worships together, hears the word together, and then just hangs out and enjoys one another's enjoys one another's company together. And so that's going to be next Sunday, and I hope you can make it. All right, we're going to jump into the second last beatitude. We're in this series called Pursuing Happiness. And it's taken um, taken out of the first part of a famous sermon, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so just to give you a context of how and where Jesus is speaking this, in Matthew chapter 4, 24 to 25, gives us a really important context. It says this, so his fame, speaking of Jesus, his fame spread throughout and great crowds followed him. I mean, he's living the social media dream at this moment. His influence and platform is exploding viral going ballistic. He is not just popular, but people like him. There's something, he's doing miracles. His teaching is like from another world. They've never heard someone like Jesus. And they're beginning to say, is this the one? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one that's going to liberate us? Is going to overthrow the Roman Empire and us as the people of God be brought into the fulfillment of all of God's promises? as the people of God. And so what happens is Jesus gathers a crowd and he sits them down and he sits down and he begins to teach them. Now, I don't know what you would do in that moment, but generally for a lot of us, when you're building a platform, when you're gathering a crowd, when your fame is growing, you're trying to encourage that, not discourage that. But as we've seen through the Beatitudes, Jesus really begins to bring about a teaching of a very counterintuitive, upside down way about bringing in the kingdom of God. And it must have been a bit of a slap in the face to his first audience. And so in this uh, this Sunday, the beatitude we're looking at is, Blessed or happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Of God. Now, if you know Monty Python's work, there's a scene in the life of Brian where Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount and a woman at the back can't quite hear. And when Jesus comes to this part and says, blessed are the peacemakers, she asks, what's so special about the cheesemakers? <laughs> um, to which her husband then replies, well, obviously it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. <laughs> and so as 
Funny as that is, if you've ever seen Monty Python, as, as humorous as that is, we too are in danger of misunderstanding or even misrepresenting Jesus' words. We, we hear peacemaker and a, a flood of things go through your brain. Maybe you think of the UN peacekeepers or whatever. I like what one commentator said um, on this. He said, when Jesus correlated our, our, correlated our happiness with being peacemakers in a world of violence and justice and hardship, his statement would have been considered radical. And so I don't know if you feel the gravity of happy are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God, but there's a sense of gravity we're supposed to feel. And so hopefully this morning, one of our goals this morning is to feel that gravity, to feel the counterintuitive different way that Jesus wants us to live our life in this world. And so when we think of peacemaking, we often think of peacekeeping. And so I, like many people, don't like conflict. I don't like uh, tension in relationships. I don't like disagreements. For those of you who have done any kind of personality tests and studies, the Enneagram has been a, a popular one as of late. Uh, I'm a nine on the Enneagram, and literally one of the labels for the nines on the Enneagram is peacemakers. And so when I read a verse like this, I'm like, okay, I got this. This is great. I'm a peacemaker. This is what Jesus said. I'm blessed. But sometimes when we think of peacemaking, we're thinking of peacekeeping. And why peacemakers and peacekeepers want the same thing, they want peace and harmony in relationships internally and externally, they go about it very differently. And so just to make a, a comparison, uh, peacemakers will engage conflict, engage difficulties in relationships, engage tensions in order to establish peace with others and themselves. Peacekeepers want to keep the peace, and so they avoid tension, they avoid conflict, they avoid uh, the hardship in relationships in order to establish peace, in order to keep peace. And so they may look very similar, but only one is really experiencing the true peace that Jesus is talking about, and only one is really practicing peacemaking. And so I encourage like you, like me, and so uh, a few years back, a, a counselor, after hearing a little bit of my story and just like, you know, throughout my life in aspects of peacemaking, people have called me, you're, right, you're really good with harmony and relationships and, and that kind of thing. She, her label for me is Mr. Switzerland. You're like Mr. Switzerland. So if you're in Switzerland, it likes to be a very neutral country and it wasn't a compliment because she was calling out at at your healthiest you're a peacemaker god uses you to to do that to do the work of peacemaking to to face difficult things in order to build bridges as best as you can at your unhealthiest uh, what you're doing is you're peacekeeping by avoiding hard conversations to keep the peace to to not want to rock the boat uh, you love the idea of peace more than the person in front of you you and so it was a eye opening experience for me hard experience for me but absolutely true uh, revealing of sometimes our strengths. There's a shadow side to all of our giftings and strengths. And uh, I'm still on that journey, but it's been really interesting for me to see in the areas where uh, peacemaking is hard work. And we're going to talk about that today. It, it's costly work, but it's the work of peacemaking that Jesus said is, is blessed and happy are those who pursue it because they're a lot like God. They were called children of God. So that's a little bit of my story. And what of um, internal peace? I love what the first century, I mean, he could have been writing this in the 21st century, but Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, he says, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart, for which man yearns more than even for outward peace. And so it's not just my story, but it's our story. We, as a people, have a desire for peace, 
a desire for the absence of war and conflict and those kind of things. But it seems so elusive, doesn't it? It seems like even in the last couple of years, we've just seen our society now will become more divided, whether it's politically, racially, ethnically, generationally. Um, this pandemic has made, given people another way to have animosity between them. And so it, it, our desire for peace is strong, but it seems like peace, true peace, is really elusive. And so this kind of internal peace that Epictetus is talking about and also our desire for external peace uh, really does seem beyond our human capabilities. Otherwise, we would have uh, achieved that by now. And so we're going to look at today a couple of things. We're going to look at the peace of God. And we're going to look at the God of peace. And then we're going to look at what Jesus maybe has in mind for us as peacemakers. And so let's start with the peace of God. What do we mean by peace? Or what not what we mean by peace? What does Jesus mean by peace? What does scripture mean by peace when it talks about peace? Because peace is a common word, right? And it means different things for different people. When you hear with peace, maybe you hear children not fighting for five minutes. Maybe it's peace in your household. It's calm. It's tranquility. It's uh, being out in nature. It's, it's those calming influences and those for sure aspects of peace. But there's a fuller understanding of peace that God wants us to get to. And so in God's view, peace is less about the absence of things, absence of tension, absence of war, absence of conflict, and it's more about the presence of something else. Um, we could call it negative peace, the absence of it. Negative peace, it's kind of like a cultural peace. Peace is when we, we just, we're all getting along. Uh, we have the absence of the things that disrupt our peace. And that is an aspect of peace, but it's far more robust than that, certainly in Scripture. And it's about the presence of something else. Um, it's a positive kind of peace, the kingdom peace. It's the presence of something else that even despite sometimes harsh and hard and challenging circumstances, there's a measure of peace that the presence of God brings. And so the word that is often used, it's a dominant theme, particularly in the Old Testament and has continued in the New Testament, is the Hebrew word for peace, and it's shalom. Now it's translated peace, but it's very rich and it's multidimensional. And I just want to touch a little bit on that because I think when we understand the kind of peace that God is advocating for, we can begin to understand what it means then to be a peace Maker. And so what is shalom? Very simply, it's how things ought to be. It's how things should be. It's how things should be when they work. It's how things should be when we're in harmony, when there's well-being, when there's flourishing. We use that word a lot. Um, how things ought to be. The three dimensions to shalom are material or physical well-being. It's a, it's marked by a presence of physical well-being and then obviously the absence of threats to that, right? War, famine, disease. It's not just physical well-being, it's social well-being. It's marked by justice and harmony in our social relationships. And then it's personal. There's a, there's an integration with ourselves. There's a harmony within ourselves. There's a, there's a seamlessness between who we are and what we do. There's, um, integrity and consistency in our character and behavior. Cornelius Plantinga said it like this. Shalom or God's peace is the webbing together. I love that. Webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. How things ought to be. How things ought to be, but then have been disrupted through different things, sin, rebellion, our own stupidity sometimes. But that's God's desire for us to experience shalom, his shalom, the webbing together of all those things working beautifully in our lives. Now, your life, my life, our lives are complex. 
And they're full of moving parts and relationships. And so when any of these parts or relationships are out of harmony or out of alignment or they break down, we lose our shalom, right? We lose our shalom. We're no longer whole. And then we go in search of that to be restored. And so there's human limitations on us finding that and achieving the peace we need. You know, Epictetus talked about, hey, you, the emperor, the rulers, the governors, the political party you vote for, they may give a measure of external peace. But what does that say about our internal peace? Oftentimes the restlessness, we still don't have that internal peace that we're seeking. And I think Thomas Merton nails our dilemma when he says it like this. We are not at peace with others because we are not at peace with ourselves. And we are not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. And so if this peace that we long for is a God kind of peace, beyond just a political peace, beyond just harmony in our world, if it's the kind of peace that we need, then let's go to the source. So let's not just talk about the peace of God, but let's talk now about the God of peace. And so the it's it's it, quite an interesting thing that as we come into the New Testament, all of a sudden, God is called the God of peace. It's alluded to in the Old Testament, but now it's explicitly stated Here's just one verse, 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the favorite greetings in the New Testament letters is this phrase, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The source of God's peace is a person. It's Jesus. That's the source of the peace that God wants us to experience by coming to him. And so to meet our human need for peace, Jesus brings the shalom to the broken parts of our lives and to our world. And he does this by first bringing us peace with God. And as we achieve peace with God, we experience the peace of God. And those are similar but different. And we first need that peace with God in order to truly experience the peace of God. Romans 5.1 says it like this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through what? Through Jesus. Through Jesus. Now, Sometimes I can see like it's too easy, like oh, it's all about Jesus. Well, it is all about Jesus. It really is. But it's a faith and a trust. You see, you already, I mean, you might, maybe even you would call yourself atheist. You still have a measure of faith and trust in things. And so all Christianity is doing is advocating to put your faith and trust in a more reliable source than yourself and whatever else it is. And it's in the it's Jesus. It's a person of Jesus. And when we come to that place, we really do achieve a peace with God because God is satisfied with what Jesus has done on our behalf. When we come to the place where we're satisfied that Jesus has done something on our behalf, then we have peace with God. And that peace with God then floods us with a peace from God or the peace of God. And when we experience the peace with God, we have a peace of God. We're now able to be peacemakers. We're now able to be those ones that Jesus said are blessed or happy. And when we're acting like peacemakers, he says, yeah, you're children of God. Now, let's be very clear. Jesus is not advocating some um, works-based or performance-based way to become a child of God. It's not saying, hey, if you're a peacemaker, then you'll become a child of God. It's the other way around. He says, when you're doing peacemaking, it shows that you're children of God. Because why? You have a family resemblance. You're like your father in heaven because God is a peacemaker the God of peace. He is a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper, a peacemaker. God is going to get up in your business. 
God is not afraid of the tension and the, the, the broken down relationship. In fact, the Bible sometimes calls us enemies of God. God wasn't put off by that. He engaged. He didn't avoid. Oh, let's just keep the peace. It's okay. I'll, you know, I'm God. I can do whatever I want. No ways. He confronted our brokenness. But in doing that, he gives us a measure of true peace and freedom, really, that our hearts need and desire. So let's now uh, finish off by maybe getting a little bit more practical. Maybe there's a little too like, okay, great. I kind of get it. But what does it mean to be a peacemaker in my day-to-day life? What does it mean to be a pacemaker? And so Jesus now introduces something that peacemaking is actually revolutionary action. It's not passive. When we think of peacemaking, now we're thinking of action. We're thinking of God. We're having the frame of reference. God is a peacemaker. He's our guide and standard bearer in this. And so he introduces the idea that peace is a revolutionary action. And it's the revolutionary action really of reconciling and restoring. Those are two key words when talking about peacemaking. Um, that's, that comes through Jesus. And it's reconciling and restoring with others, with our enemies even, and with our world. And so, Colossians 1.19 could have been a few verses I could have drawn upon, but it says this, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus, through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, By the way, peacemaking, making peace by the blood of his cross, peacemaking is costly. It was costly to God. Uh, it was the it was the spilt blood of Jesus. It was his body broken on that cross that enabled us to be true peacemakers, enabled us to have a peace with God, a peace of God, and to be peacemakers. But it was God's delight to do that for us. And so I just want to remind you that peacemaking is hard work. It's the work of doing what our Father does. And so I want to look at three ways, three revolutionary ways that peacemaking um, is revolutionary action. Um, number one, peacemaking is the revolutionary action of restoration. Now, I know that's a suitcase word. What does that mean? It means a lot of things, but it really, it's the work of shalom. If peace is all about how things ought to be, and in Jesus, God began to do something about returning things as they ought to be, starting with us, but not ending with us, with others, and then with our creational world. And that's ultimately where the future is headed, a new heaven, a new earth, with the absence of war, disease, sickness, all those things, death itself will no longer be. Then peacemaking is joining in that. It's joining in the work of shalom. So it's joining in where material, where we strive for those who do not now enjoy material well-being, where there's an absence of material well-being. Peacemaking could look like uh, helping a refugee family be fully clothed for the winter, like we just done. That's an aspect of the work of shalom. That's an aspect of peacemaking is your it ought to be that everyone have basic needs. And when we work and strive for those that don't, that's peacemaking in a restorative sense. It's social. It's working for justice and seeking to reconcile and restore harmony in our relationships where possible. Maybe in your parenting as husband and wife, amongst your family, your coworkers, your friends, in your church community. We know even church community can have conflict. That should come as no surprise to anyone because we're people. And so where people are, we're always going to have tensions and relationships. That's a given. A marriage is going to have tension. That's a given. It's how you work out those conflicts that determine if it's going to be helpful or harmful. And so Jesus is giving us tools, giving us a way to restore the work of shalom, bringing harmony, bringing peace, how things ought to be in 
our relationships in our society. And lastly, personally, that we have a measure of peace internally and just into living integrated lives between our character, our ethics, our behavior, that we increasingly experience the peace of God as we go about. And so that's the work of restoration. And so it can be very practical, very hands-on, very dirty work. It can be the hard work in, in, in um, asking for forgiveness in, in the work of conflict and relationships. But these are all aspects of the restoring work and our guide again is God. How has God acted towards me? What has God done towards me to repair our broken relationship? Secondly, peacemaking is the revolutionary action, not just of restoration, but reconciliation. And this is the work of breaking down barriers, of overcoming hostility, of things that could naturally divide us and separate us, the gospel actually helps us to build bridges with one another. It's a beautiful passage that's deserving of its own time in a sermon, but we're just going to highlight this. Ephesians chapter 2, talking very specifically about how the, the work of the gospel brings us together as the people of God. It says it this, uh, for he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Look at that language. God, Jesus breaks down dividing walls between us. That's the work of peacemaking. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the aggressive, active, revolutionary action of peacemaking. And if that's a bit lost in you in the context, he's talking about how the Gentiles and the Jews are now brought together in one body. There's a lot of hostility, a lot of complexity in, in the way that those groups of people treated one another, often motivated by religious uh, ideas. And it comes, Jesus comes along and says, there's no divide now. All equal. It, the body, the blood of Jesus makes us one. As we look to and trust Jesus, we become one. And so those, those ethnic, cultural, gender, any kind of divisions are killed. The hostility that those divisions bring are killed as we look to Jesus, for he himself is our peace. And so one of the reasons why the early church had such potency to transform the Roman Empire of its time and the Roman world of its time is because this resurrected Messiah, this Jesus, brought together people who shouldn't have been together. In different social classes, ethnic groups, different colors of skin, different parts of the world, different religious backgrounds. Jesus brings them together in unity, not uniformly, not trying to get them to all look the same, not to try to get them to forget about those differences, but unity. And when we have unity, we can actually then celebrate some of those differences, celebrate some of those aspects that make us different and make us uh, unique. And so Scott McKnight uh, comments on this, and he says, the church is God's world-changing social experiment um, of bringing unlikes and differences to the table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. When this happens, we show the world what love, justice, peace, reconciliation, and life together are designed to be by God. The church is God's show and tell for the world to see how God wants us to live as a family. And again, if you've ever tried that, it's hard work. Um, you know, we, we love to say that every nation is, it's, it's in its name. We want to be a multi ethnic church, a multicultural church, a multi generational church. Um, and that's great. Um, that's hard work. 
because sometimes it's the work of just understanding how people see things differently to you, understanding how their culture and their upbringing has shaped them to think of things differently to you. And it's frustrating when people don't get things like you get things, or people don't appreciate the things that you appreciate, or have a different set of values. And so what Jesus does, he brings us together, like his first disciples, very different, and he gets us to have a shared values called the kingdom of God, that we come onto a shared, all of our cultures kneel and bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But there's aspects of our culture that are beautiful. There's aspects of each of our culture that are redemptive and so but that's hard work i mean that's hard work it's hard work it's easy to be with people who like what you like right who speak just literally speak the same language you speak and so we understand that jesus understands that but there's a powerful witness when we come together as a different people that the world says there's no reason why you guys should come together and live life like you do what is that about and when they're asking that question we're doing something right because that's when we say there's no reason but Jesus that brings us together. We, I would not be with these people. I would not like these people that Jesus not stepped into my life. And I think when we can all honestly say that, it's liberating. I probably wouldn't like you unless Jesus stepped into my life. And because Jesus stepped into life, you're like a brother to me. You're like a sister to me. You're like a mom to me. You're like a father to me. And I want to treat you like that because that's what we are, the family, the kingdom of God. And then lastly, getting even more practical, all right? So some stuff maybe you could even try this week. Peacemaking is the revolutionary action of acts of love. And so this is now the work of living generously and graciously towards others, the way God lives towards us. And so further on in Jesus' sermon, he actually brings about um, a connection, I think, between peacemaking, children of God, with another very famous passage about loving your enemies. And I'm going to read it because I think it's so beautiful and potent. And I'm going to read it from the message, Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of this, because I think it really brings it across in a fresh and relevant way. And we're going to look at the acts of love that peacemaking engages in. So it's a long passage, but bear with me. It'll be up on your screen. It says this, Jesus speaking, you're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the supple moves of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone, regardless, the good and bad, the nice and nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. Your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others, the way God lives toward you. If there's one line that you could remember from this, it would be that last one. Live generously and graciously toward others, the way God lives towards you. And you'll figure it out. Figure out what peacemaking looks like as you live graciously towards that boss or coworker or neighbor who's just a bit grumpy or is always on your case or maybe goes a step further, just rags you for being a Christian, maybe persecutes you. We're we'll going to be ending off our Beatitudes series next week. We're talking about persecution. But this is, this is, this is the beauty of, of, of Christianity, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus' teachings, he takes these amazingly lofty ideals of the kingdom of God, of restoration and reconciliation, these beautiful words that 
can be unpacked in maybe a thousand different ways. And then he gives us some hand-to-hand, day-to-day, very practical things. You know what peacemaking sometimes looks like? Saying hello to someone first before waiting for them to greet you. Try that. Peacemaking looks like greeting someone who hasn't greeted you first. Peacemaking looks like greeting that person in the office, on the campus, in your neighborhood, who you just know is not very greetable, or is giving you a hard time. Peacemaking looks like that. Anyone can love the lovable. Anyone can greet people who greet them. That's what he's saying. That doesn't, that anyone does that. What separates us when we do actions that build bridges, that overcome hostilities, that say, um, and even the language of enemies. I love you saying, you've heard it said, hate your enemies. That was actually never a commandment in the Old Testament. But by the time of Jesus, it had kind of become love your, you know, love your neighbors, hate your enemies. There's, you, you'll struggle to find a commandment in the Old Testament that says, hate your enemies. Uh, God treats enemies and friends similar. God loves us. You know, we were all enemies of God and he treated us like friends. He died for us when we treated him as an enemy. And so we're not trying to, Jesus is not saying, hey, divide people into friends and enemies. What he's saying is you should treat everyone graciously and generously the way God treats you. Um, some are going to be harder because it's easy when you, that's reciprocated. People love you back. People treat you generously and graciously back. That's, that's easier. But almost anyone could do that. It's when people who don't reciprocate that, how do we respond to that? When people have hurt us, how do we respond to that? When people have done things, when people don't greet us, when people ignore us, when people do things that actively show us they don't want to live graciously or generously, what do we do? And we're to live generously, graciously towards them and build bridges, address conflicts, don't ignore breakdowns in relationships. As far as you can, live at peace with everyone. And that is a script in Romans 12. It's not a scripture, but it actually says, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with everyone. And I think there's a caveat here. Peacemaking may not always work out. In fact, it won't always work out because peacemaking takes two parties, at least two parties to come to the table. And you're not responsible for another's actions. You're not responsible for another's response, but you are responsible for your actions and your response. And so as far as it depends upon you, be a peacemaker. And I want to end with this. I want to remind you in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 2, before we get that, uh, a few weeks ago, I think it was Aaron who was preaching and he ended his message. And I'm totally going to steal this from him. He, he ended with a prayer that said, uh, let mercy be our reputation or let merciful be our reputation. And I want us to embrace that and say, let peacemaker be your, be my, be our reputation, especially in a time like this, when they're just increasing hostility in the world. And how can we do that? The key is in one of the verses we read in Ephesians 2, it talked about, for he himself is our peace. Peace is a person in God's kingdom. And it's the person of Jesus Christ. And we look to Jesus and we trust Jesus and we help Jesus overcome our hurts and our wounds and our um, things that people have done against us or things that we've done. And those are real things. Jesus doesn't ignore that, doesn't want you to ignore that. Peacemaking confronts that lovingly. But as we allow Jesus to help us with that, we're enabled to then be build bridges, peacemakers, reconcilers, restorers. And so make Christ your peace and then he in turn will make you his peacemaker. Make Christ your peace, and he 
will make you his peacemaker. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.